I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is author Linda K. Klein, and she's author of Pure, Inside the Evangelical Movement that Shamed a Generation of Young Women and How I Broke Free. She's also the founder of Break Free Together, an organization that helps people to release shame and claim their whole selves. Linda K. Klein has spent over a decade advocating for social change in the realm of the American Evangelical Christian Church, specifically with its expectations of young women and its approach to sex education. In her memoir, Pure, uh, Inside the Evangelical Movement that Shamed a Generation of Young Women and How I Broke Free, Linda Klein recounts how she was taught that a girl's sexuality is the most important mark of her spiritual standing with God. Linda began to rethink her approach to her faith and ask young women she knew from home if they were coping with the same identity issue she was. These conversations developed into a journey that brought survivors together, facilitated her own healing, and led her to progressive churches. Pure is a resilient call to action and a beacon of hope for all who have experienced our society's subjugation of women. Welcome to the show, Linda. Nice to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. I think the timing here for this show, and particularly your book and you in our conversation, is uh, is perfect, given all that's happened and is going to happen today and tomorrow. Uh, in So let's begin. Okay, your experience seems to just mirror exactly what's happening to women, not only the in, in evangelical church and the shaming of women and subjugation of women and women feeling bad about who they are in their bodies and sexuality, uh, but it's it's really reverberates throughout our whole culture. Um, I kind of mm. want to start. Yeah, I, I would. Uh, maybe you can comment on that uh, before we begin to talk specifically about your book. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, gender imbalance and sexual control and the, uh, the sort of responsibility that's put on the shoulders of women and girls to, uh, maintain the sexlessness of everybody, to dress in just the right way, walk and talk and do just the right things to make sure that, um, they don't quote unquote elicit, um, sexual thoughts or feelings or behaviors from others, particularly from men, um, you know, is, is society wide. So this is not, uh, exclusive to the evangelical church by any means, um, though in the early 1990s, the white American evangelical church did ratchet this up with the introduction of the purity movement, which soon became a purity industry. So what is the purity mo- movement? What is the purity culture? What are we talking about? Absolutely. So a purity culture um, would be a culture that emphasizes the importance of sexual purity, um, largely above almost everything else. You know, they might not say that outright, but if you're a young person, particularly a young girl or a young single woman in the community, um, my 12 years of interviews with people who have been in this position tells me that you get the message that this is the most important thing, um, that this is how you prove your, your faith, that this is how you maintain your worth. Um, so purity culture would not only shame girls and women specifically, although there's plenty of shame to go around, um, for their own sexual thoughts and feelings and behaviors, but as I mentioned earlier, for the sexual thoughts and feelings and behaviors of others toward them for which they are said to be responsible, um, which creates a tremendous amount of anxiety, as you might imagine. You know, as a young person growing up in that kind of culture, as I did, and as, you know, the other women who are represented, um, women and others who are represented in my book did, um, you know, we ended up walking on eggshells all the time because you were never quite sure what you were going to do that was going to lose you your purity and therefore your worth in the community's eyes um, because everybody, <clears throat> excuse me, everybody defined purity a little bit differently. What you talk about this started in in the evangelical church in the 90s. You know, what precipitated that? I mean, how did that begin? I mean, it seems to me as you're describing this, this purity movement, it seems it's been here forever, at least, you know, in the Judeo-Christian tradition, even the Muslim tradition, all of it, that women have had that kind of a, a relationship or supposed to have that relationship to the to the to, to men and to the greater community and to their religion. I mean, it, it doesn't seem like it just began in the 90s. 
No, definitely not. Purity culture has been around for a very long time. What happened in the early 1990s is we saw the introduction of the purity movement, Now, um, which, as I said, very quickly became a purity industry. And to your question about what precipitated that, you know, remember that as a culture, um, we were really scared um, in the 80s and the early 90s because we had we were in the midst of the AIDS crisis. People were literally dying, you know, from sex. And um, so this was a really uh, scared period for, for many people. Um, and one of the solutions that got put forth is if people would just stop having sex, um, you know, that would curb a lot of our problems. So ultimately what you saw was you saw um, money become available for abstinence only before marriage messaging in public schools and grassroots organizations, et cetera, funded by the federal government, um, often requiring state matches. Um, so you saw a lot of money become available from the state and federal level for absence only before marriage messaging. And one of the primary populations that was creating this messaging were um, uh, folks who were, you know, creating curricula and videos and other things in the evangelical Christian church, teaching the purity message, which is an intensified version of abstinence only before marriage messaging. And eventually that money trickled to a lot of those same people. So you started to see in public schools um, the same messages that we were getting in youth group. Um, I'll give you an example. So one of my interviewees, I remember her telling me a story about how she, a, a lesson that she learned at her school that many of us had actually learned in church. Um, and here's how it went. She had somebody um, in front of her classroom uh, hold up an Oreo cookie and say, okay, who wants this Oreo cookie? Everybody raises their hands, of course. And, uh, and then she passes the Oreo cookie around the room and she instructs every young person to spit on it or to drop it on the ground. It gets back to the front of the room and she holds it up again and she says, okay, now who wants this Oreo cookie? Nobody raises their hand, and it's presented as an analogy for a woman or girl before she's had sexual experience when everyone wants her, and after she's had sexual experience when she's lucky if any good man will ever love her. That's quite a story. That is, and I guess it, it I mean, obviously, I mean, that, that is, uh, I guess, had obviously a, a profound effect on a lot of young girls, that kind of, uh, yeah. those kinds of stories. So I guess the next question yeah, and is I like, can, I can, I can give you about, about 20 other, uh, examples of other objects that have been used from the metaphor of a bike to a car to a lollipop to a hamburger. It's very popular. I can give you one too. Uh, uh, this has to do with, uh, I, this was, uh, someone in, uh, a friend of mine's father, actually, uh, she, which she told me about. And it's a similar story to this is, but the, uh, sort of the story that uh, you have to, re telling her that she had to remain a virgin because it's sort of like skiing down a mountain with new powdered snow. And who wants to ski down a, a, a mountain that, that isn't fresh and new and, and clean? You want to, you, you know, where that's been pounded down and, and been used or skied on by so many people. So that was that mm -hmm. kind of a, which is similar to your Oreo cookie story, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and what's interesting about these is they all kind of come down to objectifying women and girls because, you know, to describe somebody as a thing, whether it's a cookie or a ski hill, <laughs> you know, a thing that's worth is uh, loss you know, is to objectify women and girls. And I think we often forget that, um, you know, when we, uh, whether we are sexually exploiting somebody by talking about their being sexy being the most important thing about them, or whether we are objectifying them by saying that being non-sexual is the most important thing about them and how they maintain their worth. Ultimately, at the end of the day, we are objectifying people and um, defining them um, and their worthiness based on one thing about them, which is other people's perceptions of their sexuality. So who are the women who are most vulnerable in this kind of a movement, in this purity movement, for instance, or to, uh, you know, actually, you know, the, what we've been talking about? Uh, there, there have to be some women who are maybe easily be believe this about themselves and their bodies and their roles and, and others who don't. Hmm. It's a great question. You know, it's a, it's a particularly good question in light of the fact that this messaging, you know, happened not just in 
highly religious communities like the evangelical church, but that it also happened in public schools. Because it's a very different thing to be in a public school and to be surrounded by your friends who are snickering, (laughs) you know, and who are, you know, some of whom are believing it, some of whom are not. Um, Very different to be in in a religious setting where everybody reveres these messages and where you don't just hear these messages once, you know, like you might in a public school, but where you hear these messages every week, where they're embedded into stories, where they're embedded into products, purity rings, purity balls, purity pledges, where they are embedded into sermons, um, where you see how people get treated. So one of the things that's important is, um, is you know, the level of, uh, of intensity that your community holds this to. Um, but there are other things, you know, gender makes a massive difference. Um, girls are 92% more likely to experience sexual guilt than boys. Um, Certainly, I've talked with many boys and men who have been harmed by this movement as well, but, you know, girls girls are particularly susceptible to it and are given a particular message within it. Um, But, you know, what's even uh, another thing that people aren't familiar with is it's the importance of religion in your life that makes a big difference. So there's actually a 30 percentage point gap in anticipated sexual guilt between the least and the most religious youth. So um, I think that that's really important because um, the evangelical church, you know, there's a particularly high likelihood to experience sexual shame as compared to other denominations. Um, it's, you know, you are among the most likely if you're an evangelical, an evangelical adolescence to think that if you have sex, it'll upset your mother, it'll cost you the respect of your partner, to expect that sex will make you guilty, to expect that sex won't be pleasurable. But I think that that's because evangelical Christianity expects high religiosity. You know, they, um, uh, I remember learning, you know, that it was better to be hot, red hot and on fire for God or to be, uh, you know, ice cold and be an atheist, you know, own one or own the other, but don't be a lukewarm. Don't show up um, on Sundays and believe some but not believe the rest. You know, the folks who were really shamed were um, the people who didn't fit into the binary because ultimately, you know, it's the binary that people hold on to tightly that um, some are pure and some are impure. Some are good, some are bad. Some are, um, you know, marriage material, and some are lucky if any person ever loves them, as I mentioned before. You know, so this high religiosity is really required in that particular community. And in fact, about 80% of evangelicals say that religion is very important to their lives. So I think that high religiosity is something that we need to pay extra attention to when we think about um, vulnerability to these messages. Okay, so when you're talking about religion, you said the least, uh, I guess, uh, as I understand it, the less religious one is, um, the least likely they are to get to believe in this kind of, well, it's, it's an all or nothing kind of, uh, uh, really an all or nothing kind of attitude towards yourself and sexuality and towards women. Well, it's more, it's more that the less religious you are, um, the less likely it is that the messages you get in religion will, um, will Impact be you? impacting you deeply. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, because you, after, as I understand it, even though you left the evangelical church, you still uh, held on to religion and belong to, as, as I said in the beginning, I think that you do belong to another church. You still are a religious person, but not in the context of the evangelical movement. Absolutely, yes. And when I grew up in, in the evangelical church, you know, I definitely, you know, being a Christian was everything to me. You know, it was my purpose in life. It was my identity. It was, um, it was who I was at my core. So these messages, you know, definitely um, got deep, deep, deep inside of me. And all of my interviewees, um, you know, were highly religious when they were young people, um, and and you know, were raised as girls. So our, our um, you know, we get we are an illustration of what happens when these messages are are taken in very, very deeply. Um, though, of course, these messages, as we mentioned before, are society-wide. So, you know, this this toxic messaging, if you look at what happened to, um, you know, my interviewees and I, you can see what happens when this high dose of toxic messaging is internalized, you know, while recognizing that this toxic messaging is, you know, culture-wide and that we're all taking in deeply unhealthy levels. 
But, you know, to your point, there are Christian communities that are talking about um, sex and um, sexuality and the body in a very different way that don't necessarily see sexuality and spirituality as mutually exclusive. And I found it very um, hopeful and uh, and healing to be able to um, enter into um, Christian communities that have... Um, have taken responsibility for the shaming that um, that so many people have experienced in in Christianity, and have um, stood as a as a point of point of of recognition and hope and healing. Um, so for me, you know, I I ultimately ended up kind of losing losing faith in uh, the institution, and and yet my faith in God never went away. Um, and it's really been incredible to find that there are some organized bodies, you know, where I can still even um, show up and be part of a community and be part of an institution um, and be in relationship with God and in relationship with self. Whereas before, um, you know, I felt like I really kind of had to choose, you know, to be part of the institution or to um, to be uh, part of myself. Um, you know, I, I had to I had to be something specific to be in that community. Whereas now, um, I really feel like I can bring my authentic self. So the evangelical movement or the evangelical church doesn't define Christianity. I think you can apply that to other religions as well. The, in Judaism, for instance, you know you have the Reformed Judaism, the the uh, conservative, and then you have the ultra orthodox, which uh, you know in in terms of maybe some of the beliefs are somewhat different than the uh, say the evangelical movement. But when you get to the far right of any religion, you, it seems to me some of these things that we've been talking about and that the uh, shaming of women and uh, sort of um, present themselves in the same way, no matter what the religion is. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I think this is present in, in, uh, in every, every sort of religious expression, you know, because these are ultimately cultural issues. Um, you know, as I said, you know, gender imbalance and sexual control are global issues. Um, and they are uh, embedded into life for so many of us. And, um, and so they're also embedded into, you know, life's teachings, embedded into many families, embedded into many religious communities, um, embedded into many, um, you know, educational communities. So let's talk about what's happening today, specifically, literally today. Where are we? You know, you talk about the uh, the, the culture. You know, this is a, a very cultural, uh, what we've been talking about has, is, you know, embedded in our culture and our attitude towards women and women in sexuality. Have we, how far have we come? I mean, let's talk about this, you know, this, what's going to go on tomorrow with uh, interviewing um, the the survivors or the alleged survivors or victims of Brett Kavanaugh, for instance, uh, and you have a group of men who are senators who are supposed to be representing all of us, uh, are, are not even going to be interviewing this woman in the context. For, I think because for many of the reasons that we've been talking about, I'd like to hear your take on all of this. Hmm. Yeah, you know, it's it, it's very, very sad also to see how many people are, are not even... Um, considering uh, listening, you know, as you said, because it, it really illustrates the way in which we have this kind of knee-jerk reaction as a culture to blame women and girls. Um, you know, I, I just saw, someone just quoted to me something that they saw on Tumblr that I thought was really great. They, um, someone had said, you know, why does his drinking excuse his behavior when it condemned mine, Right. And, you know, we, we do have this, this cultural bias um, of, of women and girls being responsible for maintaining all sexlessness. Um, and so we go to, you know, asking questions like, what was she wearing? Why was she out so late at night? Was she drinking, et cetera? Um, you know, and then, and then ultimately we, um, uh, you know, aren't asking those same questions of, um, of accused violators. And I think that, I think that that really is rooted in this, this messaging, you know, um, it's rooted in an idea that men are highly sexual and that sexuality is um, is almost an inevitability and sexual expression is almost an inevitability and um, and that therefore because of their high sexuality and women's low sexual sexual drive, which is, you know, uh, something that was repeated often um, in purity culture and that I think we show that shows up in culture at large, um, you know, that women are supposed to be the guards 
And, uh, and so that means that no matter what happens, we tend to look to the women or girl first um, and to place blame. And, um, and it, it's, it's incredibly uh, dangerous because we do, it, we do it in the early stages. You know, when I was growing up, you know, my friends and I were often called stumbling blocks, you know, literally things over which men and boys could trip on their way to God um, because of, you know, someone having decided that what we wore or how we talked or whatever it was, was, um, was eliciting these sexual thoughts from them. Um, you know, but you see that lo- logic play out, you know, in very dangerous ways, um, you know, as we start to get into conversations around violence, you know, we've been blaming girls for the thoughts and feelings of others toward them since they since many of us could can remember and uh and now you know we we see playing out in society how we continue to to blame women now for the behaviors of others um so yeah it's 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 very very sad um the kind of knee-jerk reaction to not even listen to the women because ultimately we're going to place blame so given your experience and you were able to break out of this yourself and what kind of advice would you have for women given, let's talk about it maybe in the context also of the Me Too movement. Is How can that help women? And I, I feel that it does. It, it's a process. It has to evolve. Uh, but I, I think in some, that you know, this is one way of, of women having a community, I guess, to refer to now, uh, uh, which is very different than it was a year ago uh, before the Me, Me Too movement um, to help us to be able to not find ourselves in these kinds of situations. Um. Yeah, you know, I've become a a big believer in the fact that we don't break free from any of this alone. Um, You know, I basically spent the last 12 years, uh, you know, doing interviews with people, which was uh, largely about my own healing. You know, over the course of 12 years, I told my story again and again and again. And then I listened as people told me my story back to me in their own stories. You know, the details were different, but the shared experiences of sexual shame and fear and anxiety were the same. And um, for many of us, it was manifesting physically, living in our bodies, sometimes manifesting in ways that mimic classic PTSD. And that hearing that um, story, the stories of other people, allowed me to realize that I wasn't alone. And if I wasn't alone, then that meant that I wasn't the problem. You know, it wasn't my sinfulness. It wasn't my, you know, being broken. Um, You know, something problematic was taught to us and was impacting us, a much larger community. Um, You know, and I started with doing my interviews in my hometown, um, you know, going back and interviewing those people I grew up with. And then I've been interviewing people around the country and hearing this again and again. And, And that experience has not only been healing for me, but I hear from my interviewees that it's been very healing for them. So I've come to realize that, you know, this this experience of story exchange um, is something that we need to be pulling forth again um, and again, you know, and the Me Too movement has certainly done that. And it's incredible that the Me Too movement has, you know, has uh, resurfaced very recently because you're starting to see people come into voice and come into story, um, you know, and, and we're starting to see that happen in the church too. And, you know, the thing that I want to point out also is that, you know, we've been talking about evangelicalism in a way that sounds a little bit like a monolith. And the reality is it isn't. Um, you know, evangelicalism is incredibly diverse. Um, you know, when I say, you know, evangelical teachings, I'm talking about the sort of teachings from the top, right? The institutional, um, uh, you know, faces. Um, but on the ground, what I find in evangelical churches is that there are a lot of people who are experiencing shame, who are experiencing trauma um, related to these topics, and who uh, are starting to come into voice are starting to rise, are starting to say, you know, uh, me too, and, uh, and church too. And, um, you know, and that is, that is, that is creating, I think, the possibility for, um, for healing, um, and in time might create the possibility for change.
Yeah. It's uh, your book, and we have you know we only have a couple of minutes left. <clears throat> um, there are so many stories, as you say, and you've had all of these conversations, and absolutely necessary to have these story exchanges. I absolutely agree, and we are beginning to do that, and not and we're beginning because of all because of the Me Too movement. And many others were also not afraid to tell our stories. You know, it, it just gathers a certain momentum, as you say. You know, someone tells their story, oh well, then I can tell my story. Uh, growing up. I was always told that I was a troublemaker when I wanted to tell my stories. Just, mm. just be quiet. You know, we don't really need to hear that. Um, but uh, I'm on the radio now, so it's not an. <laughs> as you, yeah, <laughs> I can tell my story. But yeah, so I, I want to mention the book again. Obviously, pure and inside the evangelical movement that shamed a generation of young women and how I broke free. And the author is Linda K. Klein. Linda, just give us a website uh, that we can go to to find out more about the book and also about your work and what you're doing. I mean, you are, as I mentioned in the beginning, the founder of Break Free Together. We've got about a minute left. Yeah. So uh, you can find out more about me at lindakklein.com. That's K-A-Y in the middle, my middle name. Um, and there's a page there called Break Free Together. And you can actually get to Break Free Together um, also by breakfreetogether.org. Um, and Break Free Together is really opportunities for people to begin to come into voice and to share their stories. And I really recommend that people find their way to do this. You know, maybe you're at the very early stages of starting to um, acknowledge and face some of these things. And you need to tell just somebody really close to you, a good close friend who will not judge, who will just listen. But maybe you're ready to send in a postcard to me with your story that I can post anonymously online so you can join an online conversation anonymously. Or you're ready to share a little bit more publicly in a dinner experience or um, online using the Break Free Together hashtag. You know, all these different opportunities, I think, are provided, you know, as a way, as a spectrum of how people can start to come into voice at the stage that's right for where you're at with your healing. Linda K. Klein, thanks so much for being on the show today. It was great talking to you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Gretchen Key Steidel, founder of President 
Global, she's founder and president of Global Grassroots and the author of Leading from Within, Conscious Social Change and Mindfulness for Social Innovation. Gretchen knows firsthand the personal transformation that mindfulness practice can bring, but she doesn't believe that transformation stops at personal well-being. Gretchen describes the ways that personal investment in self-awareness shapes leaders who are able to inspire change in others, build stronger relationships, and design innovative and more sustainable solutions. She argues that both personal and societal transformation are essential for a just society and offers a roadmap for integrating mindfulness into every aspect of social change. Uh, Gretchen Steidel has an MBA from Dartmouth College and is recognized as one of the top international 35 women under 35 by World Business Magazine and is a 2010 CNN hero in Haiti and producer of the three Emmy Time Emmy-nominated documentary films, The Devil Came on Horseback. Welcome to the show, Gretchen. Nice to have you here. Thank you so much. It's a, a pleasure. Uh, we're going to be talking about mindfulness, and mindfulness, I guess, is, you maintain that mindfulness is something that we have to accomplish on our own as, as individuals, and then we will be able to take that, uh, that, that I guess, what would you call it, the ability to be able to then make social changes, external changes, societal changes, but that has to come first. We can't just make societal changes by coercing people or bribing people or giving them incentives. Uh, leaders have to it, first have to ex examine themselves from within. Is that is that what we're... Exactly. Well yeah. said. Um, mindfulness is really... Um, in its simplest definition, a form of paying attention. And um, there's, there's so much of uh, politics and social change and even well-intentioned activism that involves um, people trying to change others by imposing themselves using sticks and carrots to get people to comply with what they want and not as much of listening, of paying attention, of really working from an inside-out perspective to understand change from a deep human perspective. And so the process of developing mindfulness is, is like a, a form of brain training. It's actually helping us develop um, a different set of skills that we makes us better leaders and better change agents. So how do we do this? How do we become more mindful? And then how do we apply that? You know, specifically, how can we do that? Well, um, it starts with simple practices. And those practices involve um, paying attention. Like I said, this form of brain training. And so as we pay attention, um, we start to notice uh, various things about ourselves. We, let's say... Uh, a simple mindfulness practice is simply sitting still and noticing your breath. And as you, and some people will call this meditation, and indeed uh, it is a form of meditation, but there are other mindfulness practices that you could just do in your daily life, walking around, uh, noticing nature, noticing what you hear around you, bringing just a greater level of attention to what is taking place. And as you do that, you start to notice that it begins to shift your perspective, um, what you notice um, about what's around you, you may begin to notice about what's happening with you too. You know, so often we're on automatic pilot. And in fact, there's a study that was done by some Harvard researchers in 2010 that demonstrated that about 47% of our waking hours, our minds are wandering. So this isn't that easy. <laughs> but once you start paying attention in this moment, we're going to notice things like, oh, you know, my, my back hurts. I've been ignoring that for a while, you know, or, um, you know, oh, I, I just feel a little frustrated right now um, with that person in, in my life or in my office. Things that often drive automatic behavior in the way we react. So we're not <clears throat> acting, I mean, we're not acting on autopilot, <clears throat> which is what you're yes. saying, that we tend exactly. to do that. Yeah, and I, I, I'm, and I'm certainly guilty of that. Uh, 
just kind of fast forwarding a little though, okay, so we do become more mindful and there are very specific techniques in which we can do that. But then once that happens, let's say we do become a mindful person, how does that translate into we're going to make great changes, great changes what within our family, within our community, with uh, becoming president of the United States and being, uh-huh. <laughs> uh, how does Maybe that work? Run. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Well, so as we become more self-aware, we first begin to recognize the things about ourselves that we might not always be so proud about, uh, that we might like to change all these automatic behaviors. We now develop, and in fact, mindfulness, as I said, is a form of brain training. It starts shifting the way in which your brain is structured and functions, and we begin to develop a lot of various skill sets that then are relevant to how we affect problem solving. So we uh, have this ability to respond with more flexibility, not on automatic pilot. We end up with less emotional reactivity and we can handle conflicts with less anger, which helps us build better relationships. And the more that we become self-aware about ourselves, the more we can now begin to change ourselves, those behaviors, maybe the way we snap at someone that we weren't so um, you know, when we're, we're not as, as aware um, that we're more likely to do. And this is where we become a student of change. As we begin to change ourselves, we realize, as much as we all want change, it's actually not very easy. Change is hard, and changing our own behavior takes a lot of intentional effort. And so as we begin to do that, we also cultivate a level of compassion for what we may expect of others in terms of their process of change. We start to realize that just in, as in ourselves, the way that our ego gets in the way, the way that we may have been raised causes us to judge other people, um, our own fears or self-doubt or limiting beliefs um, affect the way we go about our daily lives. We start to recognize that probably other people are the same. And so as we begin to move out of a place of, of less consciousness, um, go through change ourselves, then we step up into our relationships in a very different way. And now I'm going to stop you there because I want change. you, I want to just stop you there because I know that you specifically have done this and you've done this, you created a lot of positive change and in, in, in with your work that you've done in Africa. So let's apply that to what you, your own experience of how you were able to make very significant social changes in Africa, given what you've just been discussing with us about becoming more mindful. Um, sure. How did you, so, yeah, how did you do that? Thank you. So um, I can, I can share two stories. One in where I, I learned some of the big mistakes of going about um, change uh, without consciousness, and then what happens when you do. Um, I, I first I came out of investment banking and business school, really thinking I had all the tools and ideas to kind of shift society, and I went off to South Africa to try to address the, the um, crisis around HIV-AIDS, thinking that all I needed to do was convince more businesses to invest in the crisis, and I started um, a little initiative and went around talking to experts. And one day someone said to me, well, have you actually met anybody suffering from HIV AIDS, um, you know, or poverty or, you know, violence in this country? And I realized that as much as I would like to, I, I had absolutely no idea how to go about that level of connection and understanding. And luckily, um, this um, colleague connected me to a woman um, in a, who lived in a township outside of Cape Town, and I went uh, to her home, um, which was just really a, a, a two-room shack, um, to speak with her, to understand her experience and her work in that community. And I, it was really my aha moment, an extremely transformative moment for me in hearing her story and the work that she was doing. She had uh, no formal education and wasn't formally employed, um, had you know, just some, some change that she got from selling beaded products that allowed her to buy some bread and bring people together. And she was really committed to working on the related issue of sexual violence 
where in her community, a 12-year-old girl was uh, sexually assaulted by her 12-year-old boyfriend and his friends just because they thought it was their right to have sex with her. And she realized the violence had gotten to the eight, to the, the level of children. She had to do something about it, but it was extremely taboo, very difficult to work on. And, uh, and she used her resources creatively to begin working in community uh, with uh, creating a community dialogue, training frontline workers to address this issue with boys, and was making huge inroads when everything that I was doing at these top levels um, wasn't having the same kind of real impact. It was very humbling for me to realize that I didn't know what was needed you know, from the top down, that I needed to step back, I needed to listen, I needed to support uh, the change agents who were deeply affected by the crisis, and that they had the solutions, and that my role um, was instead to work more mindfully and support of them uh, in what they already knew needed to happen. And so that was the, the moment at which I founded Global Grassroots. Yeah, and I... So now, yes, that was going to be my next question. Okay, so now, <clears throat> founder of Global Glass Roots, which is a nonprofit organization that works with women and girls, I want to uh, add to be leaders of conscious social change in their communities. Uh, so, what do you do? How do you do it? Um, and we can go to glo- globalgrassroots.org if you want to uh, get more information. But, okay, so what do you do and how do you do this? How do you how do you, how you actually get girls to be leaders of conscious social change in their communities? Because we really need yeah. that right now, and it seems to me mm-hmm. I'm looking for those kind those women, those young women who are doing just that. Um, so, mm-hmm. yeah, talk to us. So, yeah. on a couple of levels, what Global Grassroots does in mindfully working to be supportive of the the grassroots change agent instead of imposing ourselves and the skill sets that we teach them um, with mindfulness to help um, them develop as leaders and work in the same way more consciously within their own community creates very powerful, impactful, and sustainable change. And it's sort of the, this is the the methodology and how to go about it is the basis of my book, which is applicable anywhere, whether you're in this country working on race relations or immigration issues in your community, there's a different way of going about it. And so the way that Global Grassroots works, in particular, we're focused on women survivors of war. Um, Many of them uh, are average, you know, uh, participants, a 38-year-old mother of four with only uh, an elementary school education. They have never had the opportunity to uh, learn how to create uh, a solution in their community um, because they, like so many other women around the world, have the least access to the resources and these kinds of opportunities. So, but they have incredible insight and ideas. And so we go uh, in in search of teams of women who've organized around an issue that they care about, that have an idea. And we invite them into what is a two-year program to help them turn that idea into a viable nonprofit. Um, we, in our training, incorporate three things. We do trauma healing because many of these women are survivors of war and violence, and we know that they need to be well in order to effectively manage their organizations. We use mindfulness to support them in stepping into their leadership as self-aware and ethical leaders. Um, and uh, we use all of the skill sets and nuts and bolts needed to start a nonprofit that will be sustainable long-term in their communities and will not be dependent on future foreign funding. We help them design the nonprofit. Um, they do all the work. We're providing them with the frameworks um, to, to think about it and, and construct the idea. We fund 100% of their startup costs with a grant, and then we provide them ongoing support so that at the end of one year um, of operations, their nonprofits are completely sustainable and making impactful change in their communities. So, we Gretchen, give us an example of one of those, we, uh, or yeah. a couple of those, actually, <clears throat> nonprofits well, that, have, that are successful or have been successful. Sure. We, we work now, um, and we do a program with high school girls as well, uh, where, where they have time to do work on issues they care about, like teen pregnancy and sex ed for girls. Um, for our women, we are now focused almost exclusively on water and sanitation issues. And the reason is that it affects so many different dimensions of women's lives. Um, a quick example, and then a, um, a little bit more detailed one, um, 
mostly a group of teachers that was noticing that girls were dropping out of school once a month and falling, falling behind and not passing their national exams. And they realized it was because the latrines in their community for their school were unsafe. They were crumbling. There were no locked doors. Girls were getting harassed and uh, attacked and teased during menstruation. And so by simply building a new set of latrines, doing some uh, awareness and education work on menstruation and bullying, they were able in a single year to bring the testing average of girls from 15, less than 15% actually passing the national exam up to over 76% and, and the next year to 87% by giving them clean sanitation facilities so they could stay in school. Uh, each what month. community was that in? Where was that? Where? This is in a community called Gahanga. Um, I'm sorry, uh, Bimana, uh, which is <clears throat> about an hour or so outside of Kigali in Rwanda. Um, and the same, uh, there's some extremely powerful change that we're seeing with women working on water because women around the world have to walk on average, you know, three to four um, miles every day uh, or hours um, to collect uh, water, often from a contaminated source to bring it home, which causes waterborne disease. Um, but there's violence. Um, you know, they're at risk of sexual violence as they travel. It takes so long that it triggers domestic violence when they get home. They don't have time for anything else. And if their girls are helping them, they don't go to school. So women care about fixing water. And most of our water ventures, um, you know, involve a team of women. Um, our, our very first venture over 10 years ago um, it was a group of 19 women, only seven of whom actually knew how to read. And they created a, a water uh, access point right in the middle of their town so women didn't have to walk anywhere. And they sold the water to those who could afford to pay for it so they could give it away for free for these dis- disabled women who are being forced to trade sex to get men to help them collect the water that they couldn't do on their own. And then they started buying women's health insurance and paying for orphan school fees. And they started a, uh, a, a way of lending to, to women's small businesses. And they um, it began serving only 100 people. Today, 11 years later, they serve over 9,000 people with clean water as they've expanded their work. And they are truly recognized as the first to bring development to their community. We've even had three of our, our graduates run for parliament. So they're coming out of incredibly disadvantaged communities. And if, if we were to tell them what they needed, this kind of transformative work and leadership would not have been possible. It would never have happened. And, and I wonder, could that have happened if you had just male leaders trying to, to do this? I mean, it, it seems to me that would be almost impossible. It's a good question, and we really trust the women to know who that they want to work with um, and how to work on gender equity issues and gender rights in their community. A lot of them use their water access point as a way of doing more education work when people come to collect water. Um, we have up to 10% men who often participate in the projects and are great supports for our women. Um, but um, And what we've seen in a, in a simple year, we see uh, men sharing in chores like collecting water go from, um, you know, from 8% to over 40% of households because of the work that they're doing mindfully to engage people in their community. And I don't know that it's necessarily um, driven just by gender, um, although we feel like women have some of these great insights and the least opportunities, so they're such a powerful leverage for change. But I think it's the mindfulness that is critical to helping people connect in a different way, to really understanding each other, to, to um, promoting change in a way that gets at the human drivers of behavior and shows compassion uh, for the needs of their community. And I would imagine once uh, these projects uh, are underway and women have become mindful and have gone through this process, men begin to realize the positive impact that it has on them, on their relationships, on their families, on their children, on their work. It, it sort of uh, takes on a life of its own, I would, you know, once it oh, begins. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. It, it's, it, there's many levels of ripple effect, but the, the personal level of transformation and empowerment that happens 
in understanding you have the tools to address the inequities around you. And you can do it in a way that allows you to understand opposition and not fear it, to connect and collaborate and be inclusive in your work instead of divisive. You know you're more effective as a change agent, and there's more things that you can you can do, more obstacles you can overcome. And I think in, even in this country, if we utilized tools like that, we would be solving problems. We'd be listening to challenges in a very different way. Well, you go around the country, you go around the world, I assume, globally. You give lectures, you talk to people. What is the reaction in this country, in the United States, when you present this this kind of approach to social change? Uh, a lot of understanding and recognition that, that we need a different way. Um, people are so frustrated with politics and the anger and the opposition and the division that exists. Um, that agenda is is um, uh, trumping the no pun intended. Uh, well, maybe pun intended. Uh, that that um, you know partisan agenda is is trumping our belief in each other and community and our values. And um, and there is such a level of of stress that associates this and burnout. This kind of working, we don't have the energy to continue in this way, and we end up instead um, blaming and angry. And so when we take a step back, we use these tools to restore ourselves, to recognize um, that the way in which we are oriented um, and fixated on our views is no different than the way someone is feeling on the other side, and that when we can reconnect on a human level, understand what keeps people from changing or is driving them to grasp that change, we can work in a very different way and we start to see ourselves as um, community members and citizens again as opposed to members of a, of a uh, more narrowly defined interest group. And I think we can change things very differently. And that's sort of the feedback that I'm getting from the opportunities that I have to, to teach and to, to speak and to share with, with um, groups and individuals around the world. Yeah, well, I think you need a whole entourage to help you do this here, let's say, and I'm, I'm sticking sort of to our culture, the United States, because we, as you've discussed, you know, we have the issue immigration, racism, urban violence, all of those kinds of things. We would do well to apply to, you know, uh, the uh, changes that you've been talking, making changes in the ways you've been talking about it. But uh, sometimes, it, you know, you wake up in the morning and you look at the news every day and it seems like we're sort of going down into a, an abyss that we're not moving forward. Well, we only have a couple minutes left. So can you just respond to that? And then I want to make sure that everybody uh, knows the title of your book. I'm going to say it right now. Leading from within, you have to go out and get the book, Conscious Social Change and Mindfulness for Social Innovation. And we're talking to Gretchen Key-Steidel. She's the founder and president of Global Grassroots. Okay, that's my last make it, question. <laughs> I would say everything starts within and with yourself. And so even, you know, we can find ourselves again saying, oh, in order to fix this, they have to do this. <laughs> so <clears throat> we start with our own process of even in our tiniest reactions and, and interactions with family and colleagues, we start to begin this process of, of mindfulness and self-awareness. And then we, we look at where we feel inclined to engage in the world around us. It doesn't mean we all have to fix everything. Um, and there, it, it also will provide us with much greater um, inspiration so that we don't burn out and feel disillusioned with the world. It gives us that strength and fuel because a lot of action is fueled by grief or outrage. And that is good for a while, but that is also toxic over time. If we are fueled instead by vision and passion and inspiration as well as compassion, we will be in a much better position to be able to have those difficult conversations, to ask what people Well said, and listen. I have to cut you off, but I think you just said it. And, and just the last word that you just mentioned, be sure, engaging in the world around us and uh, what can help you to do that in a better way is uh, Gretchen's new book. Gretchen Keystyle, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Mm-hmm. 